0: So uh, turn to the book of Judges, Judges chapter 6, uh, and uh, just uh, if you're at home, if you'll go on the word moment and click on that, you can print out your, um, your outline and you will think uh, Tori this morning thought I'd had a stroke or something. She thinks I need a CT because um, there's only 15 blanks today, two-thirds of a page, 14 font. And by the way, Dana takes all the credit uh, for that. Um, Before I begin, I just want to let you know that we're going to start a new Bible class at Renovation. Uh, We'll be launching a live online uh, Bible teaching series. It'll begin October 1st at 6.30 in the evening, and um, it's called uh, Thursology, which just for the boomers and the busters in the room, that means... Thursday theology in millennial. Okay, everybody got that? Um, So I'll be teaching on the biblical theology of the end times and the return of Christ. Uh, So be listening for more on that information in the next uh, few weeks. So last time I I preached, I started working on the life of Gideon, right, out of uh, uh, Judges chapter 6. And um, uh, we found uh, that Israel, as Gideon comes on the scene, Israel's in big trouble, Right, Midianites everywhere, they're coming in, they take the livestock, they take the, they're burning down the, the, uh, the crops. Uh, things are a complete disaster, and it says, the word actually says, and Israel was brought very low. And they cried out to the Lord. They were really good at that, you know? God's really good to them, blesses, they go do their thing, they tank, and they cry out to the Lord, and amazingly enough, Uh, He doesn't, God doesn't know three strikes are out. Ten cycles of the judges and God keeps coming back with his blessing. Absolutely amazing. Um, But that's where they were. Um, And so, um, let's begin this morning by reviewing the biblical text where uh, Gideon comes on the scene, okay? Look at the, start at verse uh, 11. This is, I think, the third paragraph. And um, it says, uh, then the angel of the Lord came and sat under the oak that was at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash, the Abiezrite. that's his father, um, and his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress in order to save it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, the Lord is with you, O valiant warrior. If you were here before, you'll realize how absurd that statement was, hiding in the winepress as he was. Then Gideon said to him, oh my Lord, if the Lord is with us, Why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his miracles which our fathers told us about, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord looked at him and said, Go in this your strength and deliver Israel from the hand of Midian. Have I not sent you? And he said to him, O Lord, how shall I deliver Israel? Behold, My family is the least in Manasseh, and by the way, Manasseh was just a half-tribe, so they were already the least of the Israelites, so he's the least in the least. And I am the youngest in my father's house. And here's what we learned last time. Number one, the making of a person of faith begins when life is tough and God's people are very low. Number two, God chooses unlikely weak people For his great purposes, remember, without you, I am nothing. And when we become nothing, you're ready to be chosen for something great. Because he can trust you. You won't touch the glory. You won't come to the end and say, wow, look what I did for God. Amazing concept. Number three, Gideon didn't have what it took to be great. Remember, from the wrong family and too young. Number four, God accepts our faith where it is, and he uses our small faith to start us on a road to great faith. And then we learned number five, this was the real mind blower. It was in the midst of Gideon's great doubt, asking God, why have you abandoned us? That God appointed him to one of the greatest tasks in history. So we were left with the application of if you're low, and your faith is, is really struggling, don't be ready for God's be- rebuke. You know what we're ready, we should be ready for? God's great calling. Because we sense the depth of our need when we're saying, Lord, I, I, just, I don't know how to put this all together, and I, I'm without hope. That is when the resurrection power can come. Because again, anyone who thinks they have it God can't use, because we touch the glory and take the credit ourselves, and then we ruin it all. We raise up the people, and they take the big falls. How much has that happened in the church in America? So, um, this morning, we're going to pick up a part of the story that we skipped, okay? so uh, and, and then, we're, believe it or not, we're going to end up right back at, Gideon could preach for a year. We're going to end up right back at the verses we looked at last time, but see a different application out of it. Okay, so look at verse 15. Verse 15 again, and he said to him, O Lord, how shall I deliver Israel? Behold, my family is the least in Manasseh, and I am the youngest in my father's house. (laughs) But the Lord said to him, now there should be a big, big, huge, complex plan of all the ways that God is going to deliver Israel through him, right? No, look at this. But the Lord said to him, surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat Midian as one man. So, this is crazy. Look at this. Here's the audacity of God, right? Here's your first blank. When Gideon asked God how he was going to deliver Israel, God ignored his question. (laughs) And this brings up at least two key concepts. I want to work for a few minutes on a couple of key concepts here, right? Number one, here's your blank. If If we won't obey until God answers our questions, listen, folks. If we won't obey until God answers our questions, then our real trust is in ourselves. Now, I want us to notice something. Gideon's question was really reasonable, right? How am I going to deliver a nation? Ha, 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 God, isn't that funny? It was an incredibly reasonable question. But even though God didn't answer his question, Gideon still obeyed the call. Do you realize, this is really striking to me. This is an expression, Gideon's willing to obey the call without an answer from God, is a reversal of the essence of what happened in the Garden of Eden. You can read right through this and just completely miss. This is a gigantic reversal of the fall in Gideon's life. Let me tell you what I mean by that. Many people have thought that God was being unfair when he didn't, <laughs> didn't tell Adam and Eve what would happen if they ate the forbidden fruit. I've touched on this before, but I want to go a little deeper in this uh, this morning. So, so let's think about a scenario where God makes a movie, right? Makes a movie about what will happen if they eat the fruit. He shows up before they disobey, af- right after the serpent has tempted them. He shows up, right, but they haven't disobeyed yet. And he sets up a huge jumbotron. Obviously, he brings snacks, puts them in recliners, and they're going to watch a movie. Um, and, and this is what happens. He says, um, hey, kids, um, I know the t- snake just talked to you. A- and what he said was, um, if you eat from that fruit, things are going to get better. Now, think about what Eden looked like then. Alaska, folks, if you've ever been there, in the in in the what seems like perfect beauty is fallen. That's the fallen earth. Imagine what Eden was like. Next time you come out of the Wawona Tunnel in Yosemite and see El Capitan and Half Dome and all of that and the waterfalls and everything, say, "Holy cow, this is fallen." Imagine what it was like. So notice this. He says, hey, kids, um, you just talk to the snake. It's going to be better, but l- let me show you something. So they settle in to watch the movie, and um, everything's going great as they see God develop and create this incredible, perfect planet that they are now surrounded by. Um, but then they see themselves eat the forbidden fruit, and all of a sudden, they, they drop their popcorn, right? They, they did have corn back then, I'm sure. Uh, And they watch for hours as their children and their grandchildren murder and marginalize and abuse each other. And they watch millennia of disasters and pain, violence, poverty, disease, and treachery. And then they watch tsunamis and wars and pandemics, and they watch their children and their children's children and their children's children's children start trafficking little children for unthinkable things. They're watching this in utter disbelief. And um, think about then if God says, um, have you seen enough calamity, suffering, and genocide, or do you want the movie to keep going? They say, oh, no, please, please, please stop, God. Stop the movie. And God says, um, uh, let me ask you, do you still want to eat the fruit that the snake told you was so good? What would their response have been? Holy cow, are we idiots? No way. There's no way we're going to ruin this perfect world. We don't want that fruit. He's a liar. So think about that strange quandary. Doesn't that mean that it's kind of a bit of a setup? God kind of set them up to fall, if you will, and many actually theologians have said that very thing. Why didn't God show them what would happen if they disobeyed? Here's why. Because uh, uh, humanity had to come to the point where, when they asked why they couldn't know the reason for the prohibition. They knew the prohibition, but they wanted to know the reason for the prohibition. And, and why they couldn't eat from the tree, here's your blank. They had to come to the point where they were willing for the answer to their question to be, because you're not God. That was where they had to come to the point where they said, the God of all perfect creation, he has chosen to not give me the reason but I'm gonna obey anyway because I trust him. I am not God. Uh, You see, if God had shown them the movie, they would have had an acceptable answer that made sense to them. And think about it, it would have been their decision, not God's. It would have made sense to them. think this through. In that scenario, they wouldn't have been obeying because they trusted God. They would have been obeying because they decided that it was too costly to eat the fruit. They would have been doing cost-benefit analysis. They wouldn't have been obeying. They would have been doing the smart thing that made sense to them, right? So, it would have been because they decided that God had given them a sufficient reason to obey him. In other words, they would have obeyed not because he was God, but because he had met their demand to have enough information to make their own decision. Hard stop. Right now in your life, where are you looking at something in here and saying, if you don't tell me why, I'm not obeying. This is a gigantic, this is the issue of the fall. It's an amazing situation here. So, so why did God, didn't God tell them why they couldn't eat? Because there had to come a point where the answer to the question is, hey, Eve, and Eve says back to Adam, guess what, you're not God, I'm not God. The answer is, we're not God. He is. Key concept number two. It doesn't matter who we are. All that matters is who we're with. So remember the situation here. Gideon asks how he can deliver Israel, but God didn't answer his question. So God said only one thing, right? Surely I will be with you. And this is how God deals with inadequacy in us. Remember, Moses, who am I, Lord, that I would deliver Israel? Deja vu all over again, Gideon? And what's God's answer? I'll be with you. (laughs) Who am I? I will be with you. Notice, we think that we have to be great for God to do great things in us. We think the battle's about us and our resources and what we can do But when we ask God, how can I do this? He doesn't answer the question. You know what he says? Is I'm gonna do this through you. Without you, I am nothing. Ah, perfect. Now I can be great and awesome and miraculous through you. He doesn't answer his question. What am I gonna do? He says, I'll be with you. It's enough. Remember last time? It's enough to be sent. This time. What matters is, is if we're with him, he can do anything, and our gifts and graces don't matter. So, here's the point of God ignoring Gideon's question. Here's your blank. I don't need you to be great. I need you to be obedient. And this segues into the next point. In a moment, we're going to go back to the verses that um, we ended with last time. But before we do that, I want to remind us of the event that made Gideon famous. Uh, And let me show you this in a sentence. Bring up that sentence, Tori. Uh, Look at this. Pretty good, huh? God winnows 30,000 soldiers down to 10,000 and then down to 300. And then he splits them into three groups. And with torches, clay, and yelling, God confuses the entire Midianite army and they kill each other or flee like crazy men out into the wilderness. That's really efficient Judges seven. Right, that's what, that's what if you've heard the story of Gideon, that's the, that's the story you know. Um, Gideon leads 300 guys with no weapons against an army that the battle calls innumerable and they overwhelmingly rout the enemy. So look with me at verse 25. Let's look at this passage where we ended last time. Chapter 6, verse 25. Now the same night came and the Lord came to him, Gideon, take your father's bull and a second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal, which belongs to your father, and cut down the Asherah that is beside it. And build an altar to the Lord your God on top of the stronghold in an orderly manner and take a second bull and a burnt offering with the wood and the Asherah, which you shall cut down. Then, verse 27, Gideon took 10 men and his servants and did as the Lord had spoken to him and it came about, look at this, because he was too afraid of his father's household and the men of the city to do it by day, he did it by night. So here's what we learned God didn't send Gideon against the whole army on day one. He just asked him to tear down one idol in a small town. But Gideon barely had enough faith to do that, so he snuck around and did it at night. And that is what Gideon, the renowned hero of the faith chapter of Hebrews 11, began like. Amazing. Folks, Gideon was called because he was a wimp. Do you know how much better that makes me feel? There's hope for me. In fact, that means there's a calling for every last one of us in this room. So, uh, we're spending time on this passage so much because uh, the implications are so easy to miss. Now look at this. This is actually a major, this is your blank. This is actually a major recurrent biblical theme. You ready? Even small actions when done for God, when the reason you're doing it is because you know you're pleasing him. Even small actions can change everything. You see, Gideon had no idea the incredible impact that this little act of obedience would end up having, just a baby step of opposing the enemy, right? A seemingly trivial act. He had no idea that God can transform simple obedience, listen church, God can transform simple obedience into world-changing power that blows a huge hole in the enemy's plan, and that leads to another key concept. Here it is. When God is involved, even simple acts of obedience can have an astonishing impact. That's how, listen church, that's how faith works. Now remember, we didn't even have time to deal with this. What we skipped over between the first reading and the second reading is this amazing interaction where who actually shows up to Gideon? The angel of the Lord. We alluded to it last time. The pre-incarnate Christ. In fact, this is one of the places where the theologians, the classical theologians have come to understand that the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament is Jesus before he's born because what Gideon ends up saying is, I've seen God face to face. I'm a dead man. See, that didn't happen with a regular old angel. They're powerful, but the angel of the Lord, he's seen God in. And, and God, Jesus, literally has to say, It's okay. My grace covers you. You're not going to die. So think about this. With simple acts of obedience, Jesus himself shows up. All right, so think about that. So, If you're all in, and Jesus shows up, and you're willing to oppose the enemy, engaging even a small skirmish can become the foundation for winning gigantic battles for the kingdom. Now, at this point, many of you probably understand that. Those precepts may not be new. So, um, I want to make this not theological, not bad, Seventeen. 17 after, and we're on application. Pretty cool. And are you done with your blanks? You can't go yet. Um, you don't want to go yet, because I'm going to tell you one of the most amazing stories that I have ever experienced, and it probably is the most amazing experience, of showing this to be the case. Um, it blows me away every time I think about this. 25 years ago, an Armenian couple moved from Armenia, young couple, moved to Azerbaijan because there was a recession in Armenia. And uh, they went there looking for work, and they were pretty much open borders then. That was the former Soviet Union. Um, uh, no, it wasn't so former Soviet Union, but it was functionally open borders. Um, while they were there looking for uh, um, work, uh, uh, the war between Azerbaijan and Armenia broke out. So they had to go into hiding in Azerbaijan because they would be killed for being Armenian and they couldn't go back home because when they came across the border, the soldiers in Armenia would have assumed they were Azars and they would have killed them. So finally, they figured out a way to go as, uh, they made, a, made some connections uh, with some, at the Russian consulate and the Russians accepted them as refugees uh, and they went to Russia. There in Russia, they had three uh, children. Now, unfortunately, the father was a, a very bad gambler and uh, an alcoholic, and his gambling debts got so great that he sold his wife as a slave to pay off his debts so he wouldn't be killed. Um, soon after that, uh, his father uh, came to live with them, and as soon as the father came to live with them, uh, the ch- three children's father. Uh, left, abandoned the children with the grandfather. So the grandfather um, lived there for about eight years with them and then who was himself Armenian, was able after the war was over to go back to Armenia uh, with the children, met up with a, uh, an elderly couple who he had known from before in Armenia and they lived there with them for a brief period of time and then the grandfather abandoned the kids and left the kids with this elderly impoverished couple. Um, It's amazing, think about this. Um, Two years later, uh, the elderly couple who had camp they essentially never let them go outside, so here they are, two years, because they were afraid the authorities uh, would take the kids, okay, so, so here's the picture. It was now 2007, Hovo was 14, Maria was 11, Hovo means John in Armenian, Uh, And Never, the youngest son, was seven. None of the children had ever gone to school. They had no social interaction. Their mother was sold as a slave, and their father and grandfather had abandoned them. Think about this. They had no birth certificate, no papers, no citizenship, no country. Officially, these children did not exist. And now, watch the God of the ages as he uses the church to perform a series of of miracles threading the needle for three forgotten orphans. See, it's unclear how it happened, but somehow the mother ultimately escaped her Russian owner, the slave owner, if you will, uh, and made it to Holland. But she was so devastated psychologically that she uh, was almost immediately after she made it through immigration, they realized she needed help, so they put her in a a mental health rehab facility. and now, enter an elderly Christian woman in Holland. One of her ministries was she volunteered at this rehab hospital, and so she befriended her, just as a volunteer, befriended this mother and heard this tragic story. Now, as soon as she heard this story, it was clear the mother didn't even know if her children were still alive. It was easily possible that they, that they had been sold by the father, right? Um, somehow, this Dutch woman ultimately made contact with someone in Russia who remembered the grandfather, think about this, remembered the grandfather, talking about two cities that he might go back to because those are the cities he had lived in, in Armenia. So, turned out she was a member of the Church of the Nazarene, this Dutch woman, so she actually got in touch with our global mission department. Um, And they connected her with Pastor Karan, who was planting churches for our church in Armenia. Some of you from Crossroads may well know Pastor Karin and may have been to Armenia multiple times. Now, you need to know something about Karin. First of all, before he came to Christ, he was in the, the Armenian mob, right? Talk about, you know, poor template to start with for God, right? Um, and, uh, uh, I mean, the guy was absolutely amazing when he met Christ and came to Christ is functionally the only thing that mattered in life to him was to love his wife and family and to love Jesus and to save the whole world. No, nobody's gonna stop him. For those of us who know him, he's, he's a wild man for Jesus. And um, so uh, what happens is uh, he hears about this a situation from the global mission, talks to the woman, and, and he's on it. So he began networking with the, the pastors around Spitak, because that was the larger of the two cities, several hundred thousand people. So he's, he's uh, with the evangelical pastors and churches, has the kids of all the churches looking for these kids at school and on the street and so forth, and, and it doesn't work. So just like Karin, undaunted, he starts driving around the small villages around Spitak, and um, connects with the pastors in these small churches. And finally, he talks to a pastor who says, you know what? We've, I've, we've heard rumor out on the edges of this little uh, village where they live. Um, there's two elderly people, and maybe they are actually three kids. Every once in a while, they're seen. People wonder where they come from, that kind of thing. So, so he launches a plan. Now, he knows he can't go barging in because, of course, they, they are, with no papers, they're concerned that if they're found out that the officials would just come and take them and, and, and would foster them out. Um, so, uh, he drives by, you know, nonchalantly, stops as if he's on the road, just being Karin, you know, really, really likable guy, um, and, um, and finally, after talking to him for a long time, they invite him in for coffee, he just kind of sits there and tells him a little bit about he and Susanna and that he's a pastor and that kind of stuff, and they finally tell him the whole story about these three kids. So he just simply says, he, he says, I was really, really careful at this point. I just simply said, "Oh my goodness, that can I come back and can our church give you some food and clothing and that kind of stuff?" And and um, by the way, they were living in two six by uh, two eight by sixteen foot metal containers. That that was their home for them and the kids. Um, so they do, and after doing that several times, finally came to the point where um, he said, "You know, would you mind if?" Susanna and I take care of the kids, and the, they were delighted. This, uh, this, this elderly couple were just delighted. They knew that these kids were locked up and so forth. So um, they go. They realize they should not split them up into families, so the church has an apartment uh, uh, right as a part of it. Uh, and they, they started living there, and the families. Uh, rotated, set it up a rotation for homeschooling the kids and staying at the church and staying with these kids so the, the three of them could come, uh, could stay together. Um, so, when they took the children, they were totally non-communicative. They barely spoke and only to each other. So, um, let me summarize what had happened when I got to be there 10 months later This was the trip after you and I went. Um, And uh, I was on my fourth mission trip there in Armenia. The children I got to see 10 months later, they were fully integrated into the families of the church. I got to see them play and talk and sing. Each of them had given their heart to Christ. And get this, (laughs) they were all reading and writing, all of them, already in Russian, Armenian, and English I felt really stupid. I mean, this is amazing. I mean, they, were, they would literally sit there, and I'd say, hey, can you write this? And the kids would sit there, and they would write in English these kids who were illiterate 10 months before. Just incredible what God was already doing. So, show the picture of, uh, Tori, show the picture of Hovo. Um, this is the smiley, delightful kid who's speaking to me in broken English 10 months after the church had taken them in. So when I followed up with Pastor Carr throughout the years, he said he's never known children more gifted than these. Um, he was also able to work with the Dutch government and brought the mother, so now the church has taken care of them as well. Uh, and by the way, Hovo has now sensed a call from God into the ministry. John who barely spoke and was completely illiterate when the church cared, is now gonna be preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, let's connect this to today's message. What can God do through a previous Armenian mobster? You think you've blown it too much to be used by God? Trust me, you haven't. What can God do through the families of a small church. What can God do when the families have essentially no resources and we would consider that church incredibly impoverished? Amazing, their sacrifice. And what can one small, aged, seemingly obscure woman in Holland do that would make any difference? She had so little to offer and is of absolutely no account to the world. The world will never care about that woman. But God used her to save three children. It's astounding. See, she could have hung around saying, you know, the main purpose of getting saved is the American gospel. I get my sins forgiven, so I get to go to heaven someday. And probably lots of blessings in between here and there. Or she could realize that Jesus has a great calling on everyone who follows him. She could realize that the reason God saved her was to use her to bring love and compassion to those around her so that, so that, think of this, she didn't know it in advance, this is how faith works. <laughs> so, that she could help a woman who had been sold into slavery by her own husband, who had lost her children, had ended up in a mental institution, that's how God uses that simple act. He was orchestrating a spectacular set of circumstances, each of which had a minuscule probability of happening. Each one that had to happen just right, randomly some neighbor in Russia, happens to remember the city of Spitak from this elderly man who took three kids away back to Armenia years ago. All of the churches being willing to look, driving around, I mean this is just astounding to think about this, so, how does God use a simple act? He was using this to save three forgotten, homeless, hopeless, illiterate, impoverished orphans who were living in a metal container in Armenia. Oh, our God cares. Let me ask you something. Do you? Church, I'm profoundly convicted by how much of my time, my resources, my energy, and my life is spent on my own interests. Do you know how God can change history? Through average, simple, regular old believers all over the world who are willing to lay down their lives and be used by God because we obey even when we don't understand. You see, Jesus saved us for a purpose, to care for lost, forgotten, and hopeless people. You see, church, it's time for us to wake up to the fact that we're surrounded by people who need us to care more about them than we care about ourselves. And you know what? You and I can never do that, no matter how perfect our intentions are. That requires transformation by the Holy Spirit baptizing us with Himself so that all of a sudden, I care about others more than I care about me. But here's the problem. It's so easy for Christians to forget those around us in the same way the world forgot Hovo, Maria, and Nevere. Fortunately, Jesus has followers who realize that he can perform miracles through someone who will simply volunteer in a psychiatric hospital or who's willing to drive around villages searching for children or who's willing to spend a time at a little church caring for uh, for and teaching someone else's child. So let me ask you a question. Do you remember the day Jesus forgave all your sins? I mean, actually really forgave you knowing what you know about you. I remember the day, knowing what I know about me, it's still the greatest mystery in the world to me. So let me ask you, are you so overwhelmed by the mercy of God that found us in our sin and brokenness that you'll give your life and your time and talents and resources in an offering to God to help him save his world? Josiah, come on up. In a moment, I'm gonna ask you to write down. If you haven't been taking notes, please pick up your notes now. I'm gonna ask you to write down some areas of your life that you know God is calling you to surrender to him. If you're at home and you haven't printed it out, just grab a piece of paper now and a pencil. Maybe like the Dutch woman, you need to offer your time to the Lord. Perhaps your neighbor just needs your time. And maybe in that kindness, in that relationship, there'll come a point, a circumstance, where the Holy Spirit will perfectly set it up, and you'll get to tell them about Jesus. Maybe you need to surrender your reputation. Is the reason that you haven't been willing to name the name of Jesus at work or school because you're worried about what other think? Maybe the Lord's calling you to do something with your life that'll require mm-hmm. great sacrifice, But truth be told, you like the security of your job and your position and your possessions. Perhaps you need to offer your service to the Lord. Who would have thought what God could do with just one believer who volunteered her time in a rehab hospital? Who would have thought? At Renovation, we have a bunch of ways for you to connect with all kinds of ministry inside and outside the church. And God wants to use you to change the destiny of others. So... Are you willing to be used? Or are we just too busy running our own life? Maybe you need to offer your finances to the Lord. Has your first love actually been your money? Is that what's precious to you? Have you been keeping God's tithe for yourself? You know, some of you just simply need to write down on that paper 10%. Lord, I don't know why. (laughs) I don't know why. You haven't given me the answer why. But I'm just gonna obey. I have no idea how this is gonna work. But I don't trust myself because I'm not God, and you are. Think about this. When I cared for the patients at the clinics in Armenia, I was surrounded by people who have almost nothing, and yet they were unbelievably grateful for a bottle of Tylenol. If you were ever there, you had that experience. These grateful eyes, when you give them a Tylenol and aspirin and a few antibiotics, it was an astounding thing. And the families of the Yerevan church barely had enough to survive on and yet they took responsibility for these three orphans. But let me make this uh, practical for us. Did you know there's a way for you to help all over the world? A remarkably simple way. All you have to do is give to missions here at Renovation, and it'll, it'll go out to bring the compassion and the gospel of Christ to people in 160 countries around the world. You see, if we weren't there in Armenia, maybe God would have used somebody else, but maybe those three would have been lost so you can give online right now or you can drop a gift in the receptacle at the end but uh, let me just give you one more snapshot from Armenia the last time i was there i saw that even some of the pastors and their families were living in metal containers kind of like what you see on the back of a truck here imagine it when i saw that it changed how dana and i have given to world missions ever since I have so much. And here are these incredible called ones who have essentially nothing. Oh God, forgive me. So as we close, look at the bottom of your outline, right? As the worship team sings, I want you to ask the Lord what he's calling you to do. Who's he sending you to minister to? What's he asking you to sacrifice? Where does he want you to go? what do you need to surrender? How does God need to change you so he can change his world? As the worship team sings, write down what God's calling you to do, and I want you to be specific, specific people, specific service, specific giving, specific ministry, specific sacrifice. Pastor Josiah, sing for you.